you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. Can we actually get smarter? Is IQ as static and unchangeable as we've been taught? What is the path to getting smarter? Join us for a thought-provoking discussion on today's podcast. For some students, and again, the, the severest children are going to the center in Israel. So severe, one child is missing one complete hemisphere, had had it surgically removed. And this young individual being brought about to a level of functioning of interaction where it was his mother only that believed in his ability to be successful. And after going through the intervention and treatment, he began to connect at new levels relationally with other people, having a level of interaction, of dialogue, whether it was through eye contact or through assistive devices that allowed him to communicate, where before he had been completely written off. He's a child with half a brain. Don't expect anything from him. And I think probably philosophically, one of the biggest belief systems that I've taken away from my understanding of Professor Feuerstein's philosophy is this belief system that everybody is modifiable and that cognition can be changed and that humans, it's becoming an accepted expectation for us across a lifespan to be able to modify the way we think and respond to the world around us. Just look at what technology's done to us today compared to a year ago, three years ago. Hey there, innovators. Today's guest will challenge your perspective on the world. According to the late Dr. Reuven Feuerstein, the chromosomes do not have the last word. If you've had the same biology textbooks and taken the same developmental psychology classes I have in college, you no doubt have been taught that IQ is a fixed quantity independent of age and learning. I never did like that answer because I always felt like I wanted to know more, be more, do more. The idea of any fixed quantity bothered me then and still grates against my optimistic view of the world today. Well, recent research is beginning to give a scientific basis for the results achieved by Dr. Feuerstein and others who have believed for years that cognitive modifiability is real. Perhaps my grandma was onto something when she did that crossword puzzle from the newspaper every week. New research indicates that exercising the brain strengthens it just like the muscles in the body. This is great news for me because now I can train for higher performance. But it is particularly great news for those with traumatic brain injuries, learning disabilities, or other cognitive challenges. These new ideas and this new research underlines more than ever the advantages of practicing and training the native creativity in teenagers. 
We'd love to talk to you more about inspiring your teens to deeper questioning, higher problem solving, and broader creativity. Just visit InventingZone.com to learn more. Today's guest is from the National Institute for Learning Development. Kristen Barber has been working with traumatic brain injury cases for years and now serves as the executive director for NILD. Brace yourself for some unbelievable insights with Kristen on today's interview. So my guest today is Kristen Barber. Kristen is a lifelong educator. Uh, She describes herself as having a deep belief in transformational learning and also a desire to inspire hope where hope has been lost, specifically uh, parents who have uh, been watching their kids struggle through school and education and wanting to reinstill that hope. So Kristen, tell us a little more about yourself. Great. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate the opportunity to be here today and chat with you a bit about my perspective as well as the desire to see parents and educators encouraged with what we're learning about the brain and understanding human cognition and its ability to be modifiable throughout a lifespan. And I think educators are continuing to come out of the university settings with a mindset that intelligence is fixed and very static. And it's only been within the last decade or so that was declared the decade of the brain that educators are starting to catch up with what scientists are saying that the brain's both structure and function can be changed. And the best way to do that, you guessed it, it's through education. So I was taught that the brain doesn't change much and that uh, there's little to no change in the neurons once you break something. How much change is possible? Very important question. You know, one of our mentors and an incredible humanitarian who was actually nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, Professor Reuven Feuerstein, made an incredible statement some years ago that was transformational. And science is catching up with this psychologist approach. And he said, chromosomes never have the last word. As we're thinking about education and the ability to be transformed, how much change? And I can see on your face now the puzzlement. Wait a minute. Neurologically based, born with with chromosomal abnormalities, we're saying can be changed. That's absolutely correct. And what science is catching up with is through specific education, through targeted intervention, both the structure of the connectivity within the brain as well as the efficiency with how we think and learn can be improved. All right, so we usually start off with history and back up to how you got here. And so I'm going to make a note. We will be back to this topic shortly. But I'm curious how you ended up being interested in learning and in plasticity of thinking and brain regeneration. How did you end up here? It's a good question. My journey very much began along the path of social services where I was working with teenagers who had dropped out of school because of alcohol, drug addictions, didn't know how to connect socially with one another. And I began to see that there's a connection between thinking and behavior at a deeper level than maybe I had appreciated. And so went back and got my master's degree specifically in speech and language pathology and went to work in a children's hospital in our our local area in Virginia. 
and worked on the rehab unit and saw how the brain, after being traumatically changed and injured, could begin to be restored and developed and recreate pathways and connections that led in functional behavior acquisition that had been lost because of the injury. And so I thought, if, if there's this ability within us for our brains to be rewired and changed after an accident, why could this impact also not be carried forward into education? And so that was the beginning of my journey and began to work for the National Institute for Learning Development. And it's our role to train and equip educators to be that transformational influence for students to create lifelong learners. All right, so I'm going to back up even further. Yes. How did you get into working with social services? What was the educational path through grade school and high school that hooked your interest there? You know, I think humans need one another, and as a society, we've got to stay connected. And I think it's about reaching out and helping those who are most vulnerable. And even as a a young child traveling to different countries, my father was in the military, born in Thailand, uh, raised in England for a while, going to the British schools, coming back here to California, and then over to the East Coast. Mm -hmm. There's a certain appreciation for the connectivity that individuals have with one another in neighborhoods and schools and the relationships that form there and that learning is best supported in an environment in which dialogue is taking place, interaction is occurring, and one learner is coming alongside another and bringing them to a new place of functioning. So did you have experiences coming through school that put you on both sides of those networks, where maybe you're on the inside on one and on the outside on another? Did that have any effect on being interested in the social sciences? I think it did. I can remember as a young child, maybe eight, eight years old, nine years old, having a particular sensitivity for the struggling learners in my class that I saw around me, the readers who just couldn't seem to decode the text, having an appreciation for those who maybe were greater artists than I was, and wondering what is it that allows some to have skills in areas and others to really struggle with it. I can remember studying a good long time for a geometry quiz and answering every question and getting a zero on that quiz and wondering why is it that (laughs) I've done what I'm supposed to do and and still can't seem to understand the relationships between these shapes and forms. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess I found myself on the opposite side of that. I had easy time with geometry, but I, I struggled as a young learner. I was in that classification. I really did not understand reading very well. I could read, and then the questions they would ask would be like reflective questions about the text. And for some reason, I could never, I I was probably fifth or sixth grade before I was able to really intelligently decipher and decode and turn a story into something that I could answer questions about. It was meaningful. Yeah. And and your story is, is such a common one. I mean, the incidence of dyslexia is so significant among our childhood population. And if you think about living in the digital age now and the understanding of literacy and what we need in order to be able to continue forward, it's really an epidemic that needs to be addressed. So did you find a moment in your learning process, and this is maybe a little bit tricky. Was there a spot in there where a spark jumped across and you realized that you you really loved the process of learning? I would say the transformational moment for me was 
attending an educational conference that the National Institute for Learning Development was putting on, of, of which I wasn't a part of that organization 15 or so years ago. And I remember driving home from that conference and saying, okay, I've got all these graduate school loans in speech and language pathology. <laughs> I've got you know, responsibilities that I need to pay back. But there's something within this field of transformational education that's going to bring about a life-changing difference, and I want to be a part of that. And I would say for me that was the turning point of getting on board with better understanding neuroscience and its connection to education and being a conduit of helping educators to understand science so that our craft can be excellent in bringing about independent learners. So in your high school experience, coming, you know, before you chose your your major in sociology, did you have inklings at that time that you should pick sociology? Not a clue. I think I changed my major four times before I decided what to do. But a part of that, I believe, also has to deal with the whole maturation of the frontal lobe. And given time, you know, science is now saying it's not until late 20s that as individuals we're coming to this whole executive functioning aspect and understanding who we are and what we're capable of doing. So I, I think I, my default is I just fell into that. My frontal lobe wasn't fully developed yet, and I, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Interesting. So the sociology, I mean, I heard you saying some things about the compassion for the other learners in the classroom. That's always sort of been there. Do you feel like that excitement found you or that you found it? I think it was a combination of both. I think the proclivity and interest in the relationship dynamics that can be so good in producing healthiness and wholeness in a person's life was attractive to me, as well as conversely, seeing the limitations of my peers or others as I got out into the workforce of What happens when an individual isn't equipped to think independently, to know how to problem solve, to understand how language is used to shape thinking? And and so I think once I got into this work, it was sort of like a a hand in a glove, and it, it made sense and allowed a propelling of the passion that was innately there for me. So what I'm hearing, the, a common thread through all this, is there's definitely a deep compassion for others. And you certainly have taken an interest in the, the structure and function of learning. When did you know that that underlying compassion and passion was there? You know, I don't ever think I've pondered that. Probably when I was doing, and are you familiar with the ropes and initiatives courses where you're as the facilitator, you're on the ground and you're working with team building. And so the teenagers or the adults are climbing up a rope ladder and doing commando crawls across wires and zip lining down. Have you ever done one yourself? Yeah, somewhat familiar with yeah, that. Yeah. So this is the work that I was doing. I was the belay person on the ground with the rope attached to the tree. And I was there to catch anybody who might fall off the ropes. And, and I remember thinking, this is fine to provide a physical net for these people of a a safety net to catch them. But what are we doing to provide a, a mental, a cognitive safety net for these individuals who behaviorally are still going to be making some of this, the poor choices that have led them to this place to begin with. So that was probably, for me, part of that turning point. So about how old were you when that, when that happened? I was probably 23, 
24. And don't ask me my age now. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty deep thought for a 23-year-old. So maybe we'll just transition here. Our audience will be curious about uh, some of the work that you did early on as a speech and language pathologist. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that experience and what you learned and gained from that. So as a speech and language pathologist working in a clinical setting, you are able to see a variety of children going through phases of illness and health. And it was always fascinating to see surprise cases where the body would respond and the brain would respond to healing and treatment and other cases where in which it would not. And wanting to understand how to best promote that transformation from a cognitive, from a language-based perspective. Obviously working in an interdisciplinary team with other physical therapists, occupational therapists, physicians, and just, just understanding that it truly does take a village to bring about a level of restitution of health and functioning. So were you working in a group practice, or how did that? So I was in a children's hospital, and we would see babies born prematurely all the way through 18, 19 years old at different levels of functioning, depending upon why they had been admitted into the hospital. And through that work, I discovered that my particular passion was cognition and language and seeing the connection between thinking and speaking. Was there a particular age group that you gravitated to in in your work? I really enjoy the older students, yeah. How much, like, what do you mean by older students? I would say probably middle school up is, uh, for me, is my sweet spot. I appreciate the level of questioning and dialogue and interaction that can happen with with a little older individual. Was there a particular uh, severity or a particular type of pathology that you love to work with in that age It's a great question. I can answer it immediately. Traumatic brain injured individuals. So whether these children had been in a car accident, uh, a jet ski had run over their head in the summertime, or you know whatever the, the horrific traumatic injury had occurred, it would be fascinating to see the various levels of recovery, both that would happen spontaneously with time and the body's ability to heal, but also with the specific treatment and intervention that these children were receiving. And I just became a complete nerd with that and (laughs) totally fascinated. What kind of pathologies occur? So if you're not familiar with the word pathology in in a medical term, the pathology basically means uh, when something is not doing what it's supposed to do. And so I'm curious, when these teenagers came to you, what kinds of things might they be displaying that were maladaptive or like what condition were they in? Good, good, good clarification. So we're looking at lost language abilities. We're looking at poor decision making, the inability to understand what's being told to a child. And and parents, if this describes a typical teenager and you've got the smile on your face, no, don't send them to your local hospital. Just know this too is a phase that she'll pass. But but for those who, who've had the, the traumatic brain injuries, it's just exacerbated or, or strengthened even more for those. So what kinds of treatments or what types of things would you have these teenagers do to try to regain function? 
So in the hospital, you really, because it was such, it was more acute care than mm-hmm. if you had been in a, in a treatment center that was more maybe post six months, the injury. So in the hospital, you were making sure they were safe and that the treatments they were getting uh, were allowing the body to heal appropriately. But then you'd be doing memory tasks with the students. You would begin to introduce or reintroduce their history, their family members, helping them learn how to focus, how to ask questions again. Once you followed them into the outpatient setting, you began to have greater tools to work with students. And and I would say that's probably where some of the instrumental enrichment tools come in uh, through the Feuerstein's work of how do we really get children, young people thinking and literally connecting the dots again between what they're learning now and what they've learned previously. So you've mentioned Feuerstein a couple of times. How early did you get introduced to his work? I was introduced to Professor Feuerstein's work about 17 years ago and began to learn of his program. His, his center in Israel is still going. The, the professor did, unfortunately, pass away this past year in the spring, um, but his work continues with his colleagues there at the center, and, and literally children from all over the world will be brought there by their families for this intensive treatment. And watching the change in functioning and the ability to connect in new ways with their family members, with their world around them, is almost nothing short of miraculous. So can you give us an example of what you mean by a really big change? For some students, and again, the the severest children are going to the center in Israel. So severe, one child is missing one complete hemisphere, had had it surgically removed. And this young individual being brought about to a level of functioning of interaction where it was his mother only that believed in his ability to be successful. And after going through the intervention and treatment, he began to connect at new levels relationally with other people, having a level of interaction, of dialogue, whether it was through eye contact or through assistive devices that allowed him to communicate, where before he had been completely written off. He's a child with half a brain. Don't expect anything from him. And I think probably philosophically one of the biggest belief systems that I've taken away from my understanding of Professor Feuerstein's philosophy is this belief system that everybody is modifiable and that cognition can be changed and that humans, it's becoming an accepted expectation for us across a lifespan to be able to modify the way we think and respond to the world around us. Just look at what technology's done to us today compared to a year ago, three years ago. What might the prognosis be if I brought a teenager who had had a traumatic brain injury and they were unable to do a lot of basic functions. How close to normal can they become uh, through this type of intervention? So I'm going to make a statement that's very common within our profession. It depends on the student. It depends upon the, the level of their interest, family support, educational environment. But if you, as the mediator, as the trained and equipped person who's working with this student, has the tools to bring about a specificity within their thinking, 
that's based on language and interaction with these materials. A perfect example of this is that in Israel, it's compulsory for young people to serve in the army. But for many years, they said those with Down syndrome don't have the cognitive functioning in order to be able to serve in the army. There's studies after studies of families, if others are interested, that these young people in Israel with Down syndrome went through this instrumental enrichment training and were able to be adopted into the Israeli army at a functioning level that meant that they were safe to use equipment, they could perform army-related tasks, where before... Even under stress. Even under stress and and duress and high-pressured situations. It's it's mind-boggling, isn't it? Because our schema, our understanding maybe of, of individuals who, from a DNA standpoint, are chromosomally different... Than, than ourselves or than others, we say, how is this possible? But if you can get to, with specific intervention, the underlying processes of thinking and a specific thinking action that can be built to mental operations, which then can be constructed into the whole metacognition of thinking about your thinking, then you've just created a greater level of independence and functioning in an individual. And that's possible even for some of these very severe cases. Remember that statement, chromosomes never have the last word. That seems like a lot. It's a big, big, bold statement, isn't it? It is. And, I mean, I recently worked for a medical university, not deeply with some of the individuals in the neurology department, but I I did enough that I had to get somewhat familiar. And it feels like there's a lot that we don't know about this subject Um, Even at the very basic level, we don't even completely understand things like action potentials and how to measure them and even what that means because there's a biochemical electrical process happening. And, you know, forgive me for using all the physics terms because that's, you know, that's what I was curious about. But that leaves a lot of room for not understanding or for complexity that we can't completely wrap, forgive the expression, wrap our brains around. (laughs) (laughs) How apropos for this conversation. Well, and and that's true, Steve. And and what is exciting, two summers ago, it was either two or three summers ago, I was with Dr. John Gabrielli in in his labs at MIT, where they are doing the functional MRI studies and saying, how is the brain both normal and quote-unquote abnormal processing even as simple a task, quote-unquote simple a task, as decoding the word DOG dog. And what's happening within those chemical reactions, within the movement of water now, they've got these diffusion tensor imaging machines that can watch how the flow of water between the different hemispheres and between the the different lobes of the brain is, is connecting and the speed at which it's connecting both before and after treatment and beginning to understand what are some of the those connectivities and ways in which the brain is responding to specific treatment. Interesting. Well, I could continue to ask uh, hundreds of questions about this because I'm dreadfully curious now about how much is is possible. And you know intellectual curiosity (laughs) is one of the highest signs of an IQ, so good for you. (laughs) Without crossing inappropriate boundaries, can you Tell us a little bit about someone who you have been particularly impressed by the 
the change in them and, and how that changed their life? Like, what did their life look like before and what did it look like after? The trajectory of someone's life, the good news is, is that the propensity for learning is there in all of us. There's a particular young man, I'll change his name, let's just call him Alan, who came to me as a 14-year-old. And this young man had been in public school, had been in private school because his two older siblings had successfully been in the private school that the family tried to, to place Alan in. And that hadn't worked, so he'd already been in public school, been in private school, and he was currently being homeschooled because of the family's frustration with the lack of ability to reach this young man with where he was. Brilliant verbally, uh, could hold an adult conversation with you as a 14-year-old, insightful, inquisitive young man, but every time he picked up a pencil or picked up a pen, attempted to spell a word, it almost appeared as if a second grader was either writing the word or trying to spell the word. Hmm. He struggled to read significantly, but boy, was he sharp with math, and he could solve math problems in his head that were way advanced for his years. So this young man, Alan, went through an intervention program with us. And, you know, if you're going to change the way that the brain is functioning, it's not a quick fix. It takes time. It takes specificity. It takes duration. And it takes intensity. And so after after three years of working specifically in this intervention program two times a week for about an hour and 20 minutes, he was retested to say, let's take a look at his cognition, his thinking. Let's take a look at his achievement. During that three-year period, this young man came out of homeschooling and entered back into the private school that he hadn't been successful in as he entered back in as a junior, um, taking AP math, AP courses that were just a real challenge for him. Uh, We tested his IQ afterwards, and I believe he was 130s for his full-scale IQ, and verbal comprehension was very high. His problem-solving was high, and this was a young man who went on to university and got a scholarship, an athletic scholarship, who's now, by the way, pursuing his Ph.D. in physics, who before he came as a 14-year-old was being homeschooled because anytime he wrote, anytime he tried to decode a word, he looked like he was functioning as a 7-year-old. So if, for instance, you tested the, his IQ coming in, what would it appear to be? So when this young man's IQ came in, he was around 112, 110-ish or so for his full-scale IQ, and then his, his indice scores. At that time, we were still using the, the earlier version of the, the cognitive test, so nonverbal and verbal. There was a certain discrepancy between those scores that we knew there was an innate ability in there, but somehow there was a disconnection between how he was processing the information and how it was coming out. Hmm. That's a pretty big jump though like 20 points it's statistically significant and and what's exciting steve is that for 40 years within this work of of nild we've worked with thousands of children thousands of students who have had those same type of outcomes where they come in functioning at a much lower level both from an achievement a scholastic achievement as well as a a cognitive functioning level and come out creating independent learners Wow. So again, I could keep coming after this, but let's come down to our final two questions here now that we've come full circle. What does it mean in this current digital age? You know, because certainly that has affected a lot about how we think and how we think about our interaction with each other, society in general, uh, individuals. 
what does it mean in our digital age to be, quote, educated? What does the word educated mean? There have been terrific advances in the digital age that have contributed to our knowledge base, to our resources, to our abilities to say that the world really is flat and we can connect in new ways with with literally around the world in, in seconds. And so I think education has opened up new horizons for students who before the digital age was available maybe would have been much more static. But to be educated in the digital age means that an individual is able to think critically, to problem solve effectively, to collaborate with peers, with others inside and outside of their normal circles of interaction, but to also be creative. And I think if, if we're preparing this next generation to go after us, we've got to focus on developing the ability of how to think. Not so much these high stakes, let's force the what to think, but let's create learners who know how to think, how to problem solve, how to collaborate, and how to be creative. Excellent. I, I love that answer. So the last question and you have a unique, you have a really unique perspective on this. What is the purpose of an education? We want to create lifelong learners who have a propensity for continual pulling in new information, connecting it with old, and bridging it to what's next. I think we'll just stop right there. That, that was really good. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to our audience. And if they're interested in learning more, what's the best way for them to connect with you or with NILD? Great. Website is www.nild.org. If you're interested in emailing me, it's my name, Kristen Barber, K-R-I-S-T-I-N-B-A-R-B-O-U-R at NILD.org. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you, Steve. If you've been enjoying the conversations and insights here on the podcast, Share it with a friend. Great ideas demand to be shared. You can also help fellow parents and educators by subscribing to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast in iTunes, leaving a rating, and writing a review. If you use Android, subscribe, leave us a rating, and write a review in Stitcher. Links to subscribe can be found at www.ttinvent.com podcast. Contact us and we'll think through the comments and answer your questions here in the podcast. And be sure to let us know if you'd like a shout-out or to remain anonymous. You can share your comments and questions at www.ttinvent.com podcast or by emailing us at podcast at ttinvent.com. Let's discuss your thoughts and questions. Join us again next time when we will again seek to answer the question, what is the purpose of an education? And as educators, how do we awaken the inventor in each of our students? Mm-hmm.